0: My guest today is Safi Bacall. After working as a consultant for McKinsey, Safi co-founded the biotechnology company Cinta Pharmaceuticals, serving as its CEO for 13 years. In 2011, he worked with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors on how to transform the future of U.S. science and technology research. He's here today to discuss his new book, Loon Shots, how to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars, cure diseases, and transform industries. Safi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, delighted to be here. A lot of what I do, you know, generally I focus a lot on public policy, um, and uh, when I think about that and I think about, you know, a lot of the sort of business books on innovation that I see, a lot of it seems to be about sort of how to find, like, the next big thing. You know, where do those new uh, ideas come from? How do we get better at generating those new ideas? Your book, though, as it says in the title, is how to make sure that those ideas, when they, uh, when they appear, sort of don't get shot down, they don't get lost, they don't get over- overlooked. How do we turn those ideas into actual you know, products or services, or perhaps in the case of uh, politics, into actual public policy? So we'll start off. I guess I'd probably ask you to define what a loon shot is first. So do that, and then how do we nurture those things?
1: Sure, well everybody knows what a moonshot is. It's a you know big idea, or a, de- a destination, or a goal, curing cancer, or eliminating poverty, or something. But the question is, how do we get there? It turns out that the, if you look back in history at the big ideas, the ones that have changed the course of science, business, or history, they rarely arrive with blaring trumpets and red carpets, dazzling everybody with their brilliance. They're usually dismissed sometimes for years, sometimes for decades, with their champions written off as crazy, since there wasn't any better word in the English language, I just made one up. I called them moonshots.
0: Good, excellent. That's uh, I, th- I think that's uh, fantastic. And, and we talk a lot about like wh- you know what is the right kind of culture to you know, to make sure that those those ideas which may seem crazy at first uh, don't get shot down or left behind. But that's not what your book. Your book isn't a, isn't a, isn't a culture book. It's it's actually about uh, how uh, how hey, how an organization um, is, is structured. Uh, what what is the kind of structure? Uh, I mean, if I if I if I'm running an organization, whether it's whether it's a, a government agency or a company, how do I make sure my company nurtures those
1: those crazy ideas? Sure, you can think of culture as a patterns of behavior you see on a surface much like in a glass of water you have molecules slushing around and uh, when they're liquid and you have molecules rigidly locked into place when they're solid and the problem with the focus of so much of the literature on culture 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 and I was one of the consumers of that literature when I first started a company when I was about 20 years ago everything was about culture it starts to feel a little unsatisfying because they all sort of sound the same and sometimes they're opposite, sometimes they're different. It's really hard to put your finger on it. But the problem with that idea of culture is that it's so hard to change. No amount of forcing employees to watch two hours of videos or hold hands and sing kumbaya is going to do much. In just the same way that no amount of somebody screaming at molecules in a block of ice to loosen up a little is going to turn them into liquid. right? But a small change in temperature can get the job done. A small change in temperature can melt steel. And that's what I mean by structure. It's what are those underlying designs and incentives that drive behaviors deep down across the organization that on the surface can result in different cultures. For example, if you reward rank, which is very typical in companies, you pay assistant vice president, less than a vice president, less than a senior vice president. Every time you go up, you get rewarded with these great big bonuses. You're going to encourage a political culture. People will be stabbing each other in the back and shooting down their neighbor's ideas in order to go up that ladder. On the other hand, if you reward and celebrate ideas and results, you're going to create very innovative culture. So political culture, innovative culture is what you see on the surface. Underlying that are the small el- the elements of structure, the design, and the incentives. What,
0: what, what are some sort of classic examples? Uh, we'll start with, you know, generally on the podcast, we talk a lot about public policy, but uh, we'll start with companies. What are some classic examples of companies that nurtured, nurtured those crazy ideas, nurtured those big ideas, and what were sort of the, those, those small structural elements
1: that helped, you know, make that possible? You know, since, we're, since you spend a lot of time we're talking about public policy – why Why don't we actually go there? Because, in many oh, ways, sure. this this project started with the public policy question. I then veered off into companies because i had I was brought in to analyze a public policy question in part because I was different than the usual public policy types Well, it, was,
0: indeed, on the very on the very first page, you cite uh, Vannevar Bush's goal uh, during World War II to turn the u s. into the initiator. Uh, rather than the victim of, and I I love this phrase, (laughs) innovative surprise. So, yes, you're right. So you sort of start start looking at the public policy. uh, So I'll let you sort of, you know, take it from there.
1: I start, you know, what's so interesting is that I started with public policy. That was seven or eight years ago. And the question was, how should we shape the future of national research? And it was, uh, I was uh, working with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors. uh, And I was brought in because... Most of the folks there were on the academic side. I did have some academic background, which meant I could speak their language, but I also had been running a public company at that point for many years. So I had a uh, so business side and understanding through healthcare and biotech of, uh, of healthcare. So I was invited into this future of national research question. And the first day, the chairman of the group stood up and said, your job is to write the next generation of the Vannevar Bush report. And unfortunately, at the time, I wasn't very well educated in policy or history. And so I had no idea who Vannevar Bush was or what his report was. And I spent the next few months reading and learning a lot about the history of what he did and why he did it and why it seemed to work so well. And what he did was right at the outset of World War II in early 1939, he recognized that the U.S. was far behind Nazi Germany in the technologies that would be critical to winning the war. The Germans had invented these things called U-boats, the submarines that looked ready to strangle the Atlantic, which they did. For every year of the first four years of the war, they shot down more ships than the Allies could build. They had these planes that outclassed any plane that... the uh, allies had and looked ready to bomb Western Europe into submission, which they did within a matter of weeks. And then, and then finally, two German scientists had developed this thing called nuclear fission, splitting the atom, which put Hitler within reach of the most dangerous weapon ever invented by man. So, Bush, who was at the time dean of engineering at MIT, quit his job, talked his way into a meeting with the FDR, he moved to Washington DC, talked his way into a meeting with FDR, And told him, we're going to lose this war. It was a 10-minute meeting. And it probably changed the course of the war and actually the course of the United States for the next 50 years more than any other 10-minute meeting. He said, we're going to lose this war. And I want you, I have a proposal for you. And he handed him one sheet of paper with three small paragraphs in the middle. And he said, I have a proposal for you. I want you to authorize a new group inside the federal government that will report only to me. And I will report only to you and I will mobilize the nation's scientists for war. I will develop the weapons that the US military, the Army and the Navy are not willing to fund, the crazy ideas, the loon shots. FDR read it, signed it, okay FDR, Bush turned around and got to work. And of course the technologies that he built did in, the, did in fact in the end turn the course of the war, helped shoot down the U-boats, developed nuclear weapons. But more importantly, the system that he created, it was a system for innovating enormously fast. And here's what he understood intuitively. He understood, and this is why it's so fascinating to me right now, because literally this morning I've been in touch with members of the U.S. military at very senior levels who are also want to think about how do we nurture loon shots faster and better? How do we innovate faster and better? Because the life cycles of products and technologies, including military technologies, is just accelerating. And if we want to stay ahead of the nation's threats, we need to innovate faster and better as Army, as a Navy, and all of the branches of the services. So I've I've kind of come full circle Mm. from where I started this project to uh, literally right now. And what was so interesting to me about what Bush did is that he didn't try to change military culture at all. He recognized that there, that the tight discipline and the rigid hierarchies and the redundancies and the focus on quality and accuracy are essential in the military. If you want to make, you know, build million, you know, assemble millions of guns, build thousands of planes and ships and tanks and direct millions of soldiers in battles across four continents, you need. Very high accuracy. Risk, for example, the word risk means one thing to a soldier and one thing to a creative designer or artist or scientist. To a soldier, risk is a very bad thing. To a soldier, if you're going on a, going onto a battlefield in a high-risk situation, that's a bad thing. If you as a commander tell your general, I've really taken all the risk out of this battle, I've done this and that, the general will give you a big thumbs up. Fantastic. You've de-risked the situation. Imagine going to a creative scientist or an artist and saying, you've really taken all the risk out of your art. That's a horrible insult. Right. So the environment the environment you need to deliver operational excellence, whether that's in the military or inside a company, is exactly the opposite. It's 180 degrees from what you need to create wild new ideas. Just the example, just that English word means totally different things. In one case you want to maximize intelligent risk taking. In the other case you want to minimize risk.
0: Well well, um whether you must want to stick with the military more broadly, do you do you think n uh do we have a uh a government and a country right now that is optimally designed to nurture to nurture risk, to nurture crazy ideas. Um are we
1: where we where we realistically could be no and I think that's (laughs) there's I don't want to talk about work that's in progress right now but I think there's very high level of uh, attention to exactly this I think there are many military leaders in my uh, experience that are focused on that as their number one priority they've recognized that the nature of of warfare is changing at a faster and faster pace, driven by newer and newer technologies, faster than it's ever changed before, and that the military that we had in the past and the systems that we had in the past may not be the right systems for what we need in the future,
0: or even more broadly, you know, beyond the military, just at just sort of you know national. Sort of science and research policy um, right. you know there's you know obviously you know it seems it seems like there's all this fantastic stuff happening in Silicon Valley, and you know gee, you know maybe maybe they should just be taking the lead. they seem you know Google spending tens of billion dollars on r and d amazon uh, all the, all these tech companies uh, is government doing what it should do to create so 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 the so the United States, whether it's military or just more broadly economically. Uh, is, is, is the source of, of innovation.
1: All right. L- let's separate out exactly as you did two things. One is the military, and the other is the private industry economy. So let's, we need rapid innovation in both. In one case, it's national security. In the other case, it's to ha- maintain a, com- a, a competitive economy on the world scale. And there which, of course, is a, which,
0: of course, influences our our, our military capability. Which, of course, uh, and they yeah. feed off
1: each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so what uh, most people get – so many people get this wrong, especially in the context of my industry, which is uh, uh, drug discovery. And, in fact, I got a message that – you know one of the reasons you wanted to talk to me was I had written this um, editorial at some point on um, some congressional hearings that had been held about we should tax drugs because they – you know, they, they come from federal research. So, so many people get this point so wrong and it's so critical to understand it. It's so critical to understand it if we want to create the right policy and the right environment to help all of our industries succeed in a very competitive world. Mm-hmm. And what we get wrong is federal research is the secret sauce behind the United States success for the last 70 years. And the seamless transfer of federally sponsored research to industry, or as seamless as we can get it, is part of that secret sauce. So decreasing federal, and people have, for the after Vannevar Bush essentially created a nursery for loon shots, which helped the military turn the course of World War II, and then evolved into our national research infrastructure, the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, and so forth, people miss the fact that though that federal research drove so much of the American economic success since World War II. For example, the biotech industry, GPS, internet, even the transistor, personal computing industry. So many of those industries got started based on federal research with the transistor, which was the invention of the decade and transformed All our lives, probably more than any other single invention of the 20th century, we would have never gotten there if it wasn't have been for the pure germanium and and silicon uh, crystals that was developed based on funding from federal uh, agencies. And so many other inventions came from that. And the reason that people miss often on both sides of the political spectrum is something that you can call market failure as a as uh, someone who's been in the public markets for many years and someone who is very enthusiastic about the ability of incentives including economic incentives as well as any kind of incentive to help drive improvements and competitiveness in the products that we produce i am of course a big believer in markets but markets will fail for a game theory reason when any one investment makes no sense for any one player they won't do it. And here's what I mean by that. If you rewind the clock 40 years, the idea of genetic engineering, the idea of putting cells in the lab and in somehow in mm-hmm. transforming their DNA so they will start producing proteins as drugs was kind of cr- a crazy idea. It's a loon shot. Could a, would it have made sense for any one company to invest in that? No. Any one company has a fiduciary duty you know, the CEO and the board have a fiduciary duty to make a reasonable return on investment for their shareholders, and that and, was and, a, and,
0: and, indeed, you know, when we talk about the R and D from companies, you know, you know, like Google, um, and Google, you know, talks about its, you know, its moonshots. You know, they are expect, you know, they they aren't just you know doing research to do research, and you know, maybe someday in the far future, it'll they're they're, they're looking for their their moonshots to have a return on investment at some point. They, sure, and, and, we, and what you're talking about is something, again, sort of er, earlier stage.
1: It's earlier stage. I actually have spent quite a while with a Google X Group, for example, and they are growing in the business of growing companies. Right. They have a positive return metric. They're investing with a longer timescale on some crazier idea than other companies, but they're not a non-for-profit institution. The goal there is to create new companies, and they've done that. They've successfully spun out companies that have attracted new capital and are- right. You know, headed towards revenue and profitability. Now, earlier stage, no one could have afforded to invest in biotech. That investment that the government subsidized created the biotechnology industry with tens of billions of probably hundreds of billions by now of revenue and profit and, of course, taxes in return for the federal government. But that has given us an incredible not only economic competitiveness. But because we are the world center for biotechnology, the world, the, the leading nation in that research, there are all sorts of national security and geopolitical advantages to being the world leader in that particular technology. And that's just one. The Internet, of course, we started, uh, we started much of the interconnected internet got seeded by federal research 3D graphics i mean so many even the google search algorithm the the students larry page and sergey brin were working off nsf fellowships when they on an nsf project when they and their advisor kind of stumbled on that algorithm or developed that algorithm so many of our big companies trillion now trillion dollar companies benefited from federal research, which you could never have invested in, even liquid crystal technology, which is you know in every smartphone screen. You couldn't really have invested in that basic research as an individual company. How do you justify to your board or your shareholders? Well, I think I'll throw money at this stuff. I, you know, I'll be damned if it's a product 25 years from now. You can't do that. So that has been the secret sauce. And the problem is that we are decreasing investment in that just as other countries, notably China, have figured out that secret sauce and are doubling down on it, so. is, is the issue that we
0: is the issue that you would like us to spend, you know, you know, you know, do, you know, spend ten times more, or five times, or twenty five percent more, uh, or do we need to spend it somehow differently? Are are sort of the current structures in place, um, different agencies, is that basically fine? Would they're just underfunded? Uh, how do
1: you look at that? No, there are three things we need to do. We need to spend more, spend differently, and not get rid of our most valuable assets by taking the people we train as graduate students and sending them back to foreign countries. So, number one, spend more. Sure, decreasing NSF or NIH funding at the time that other countries have figured this out and are increasing is a really dumb idea. Number two, spend differently. What worked in the beginning, meaning... You know, the first couple decades after the Second World War is not the same as what's going to work now. Our organizations, the NSF, was a very, very small, scrappy organization in the first decade or two after uh, the Second World War, and the same with the National Institutes of Health and so on. Now they've gotten much bigger. And when you get much bigger, there are natural reasons you get collectively more conservative for actually various reasons. <laughs> I talk about in shots in some kind of fun ways. But the not-so-fun consequence is that you get these structures in research, research of what could be important breakthroughs, where you have a science foundation that's gigantic and kings in fields. And the interplay between kingmakers in fields and science foundations means that kingmakers' favorite next set of projects get funded. And the really crazy ideas, the things that the kings don't like. And by kingmakers I mean, you know, the biggest thought leaders at the biggest universities who the granting agencies all do whatever they say. So the problem with this current structure is that we need to fund the crazy ideas that the kingmakers think are crazy that are too crazy right. for the NSF or these Kingmakers or the Harvard professors or the Stanford professors or whatever. It's the guys who have this wacky idea. And you know what? If you try 10 of them, nine might not work. But that 10th one might be the next version of Mike Brave Radar. You know, Mike,
0: well, you know, my, my, you know my my, concern is just kind of looking at the current political atmosphere. If you let's, say, you know, if, whether it's, you know, whether it's a DARPA or it's some sort of new agency that funds crazy ideas and nine don't work, that there'll be someone, someone saying, there you go. Look at this agency. Look how they're wasting taxpayer money. Look at that idea it didn't work. And they spent $100 million on that. Um, and the focus just seems to be so sort of risk-averse. Um, I mean, do you, what do you think of that? Do you, I mean, do you notice that? that? That seems to me to be the environment. That, I'm not sure there's a sort of political patience for that kind of thing right now.
1: Well, I'm not a politician and I, you know, obviously there's a ton of political grandstanding and I, you know, the time that I did spend in DC, it was actually... Made you want to leave DC, I'm sure. Well, I didn't go back, but, (laughs) you know, but what was surprising to me is that how many times the public facing, television facing statements had nothing to do with what both sides would say when the cameras were off. It was kind of, for example... The state, you know, the idea of stapling a green card to every PhD, right? Everybody wants that because, you know, the, 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 it has things that appeal to both sides of the political spectrum, but, you know, when you face a camera, they say one thing, but then when they get together, I found that both sides tended to be for the most part, and there were of course outliers, well-intentioned people who were trying to do the right thing pretty much understood the facts and the ideas. And uh, of course, in different extremes of the spectrum, they started with different, some different value systems and some different assumptions, but on many things they could agree. For example, you know, legislating uh, prices or legislating salaries in my industry, in the healthcare, when you take away the cameras, both sides understand that that stifles innovation and we would just have less new drugs and we would actually all be worse off once you start heading towards a socialist or a communist system. None of those countries ever produced a lot of very innovative new drugs like we do and that there's for a reason. And people understood that when the cameras were off and that's what you would hear in conversations when the cameras were off. So I don't really know how it works there now. I don't think I want (laughs) to know. But I probably don't want to know. But your point your point right. you made an excellent point which is fear of failure and the, the point is when the cameras are on people can use that to score political points against each other i there is some you know pr stuff around that that probably better you know people who are professionals have ways to deal with but i know inside companies what we do inside companies and some of the better companies do which is as an example which is very effective is they create signals for example one company i know has a day of the dead meaning they go they bring out all their dead projects and they celebrate them now you want to be thoughtful about analyzing deaths analyzing failures in your postmortems did they die because they were intelligent risks well taken or were they really stupid ideas, stupid risks, not well thought out? And that's not always obvious. You do need some thoughtful analysis. There are many risks that are intelligent risk worth taking. For example, you know, if there are three lottery tickets and they cost a dollar, each one costs a dollar, but if you win, um, you get $1,000 and you get to take one lottery ticket, of course you should take it. So. You know, you have a two out of three chance of failing, but of course you would do that. You would do that all day long. It's an intelligent risk worth taking. So I don't know how, you know, professional politicians or unprofessional ones, whichever ones we have there can get that done in the current environment. But if there is something we do need to exactly, as you said, have an understanding of portfolios that we and I do know. From my discussions with folks at DARPA and other agencies, there is exactly the fear that you say that if they create a project that could have bad PR, they actually kill that project. Right. Um, even if it's an intelligent project, probably a famous example is the, uh, sourcing, uh, the, um, leveraging the power of crowds or the wisdom of crowds oh, to, yeah. to yes. do you remember that one oh, to predict, yeah. uh, assassination attempts or terror attacks, see who's betting, you know, right. like a terrorist market. Okay. Yep. So that's an example of really bad PR, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> really bad visibility. Now, what so was that, that
0: prediction market called? It was the, uh. Yeah, I was sorry. I was just reading about it a couple of months ago, but we don't have much time left. I wanted, to, um, I did since you brought up that um, I think it was a Wall Street Journal op-ed, um, about about you know our our uh, you know our consumers getting return on on government's investment really in let's say in the development of drugs. Um, and there was um, this is what Alexandra Casio Cortez has been talking about. She worried that you know that government spending all this money, but they're not getting a return on investment. There's a key sentence in your op-ed which I think. Well, I think it's a real takeaway. Let me just read it. That the goal of the federal research system has always been to transfer new knowledge and laboratory results as quickly and seamlessly as possible to private industry, which can then translate them into useful products that can boost the economy. I mean, that's that process is important to understand. and, And that result, I mean, that that is the return on investment that we are getting those useful, useful products. That, that boost the economy or boost our health or or what have you. is that is that is that is that sentence not well understood by policymakers? <laughs>
1: there are three things that people who talk about this get wrong so often. And what pissed me off about that particular hearing was <laughs> those three things were gotten so wrong, so blatantly, so obviously in like the span of five minutes that it just stunned me, which sort of prompted me to write that thing. Number one, that federal dollars pay for new drugs. No, federal dollars pay for ideas. Here's a difference. I have an idea in a shower for a movie. Let's say, I, here's my vision, robots take over the world. That's an idea. Now here's the product, the movie Terminator. The distance between a, an idea in basic research and a finished drug is roughly the distance between me having that idea in the shower and James Cameron making the movie Terminator. It's a huge, huge distance. So no, federal research does not pay for drugs. Federal research pays for ideas, and there are lots and lots of ideas, just like there you know, for biology and drugs, just like there are lots of ideas for movies, and very, very few actually get turned into something useful. That's number one. Federal dollars do not pay for drugs. Number two, that federal research turns into something commercial is a bad thing. As you just said in that sentence, that's exactly the point of federal research. Federal research funds market failures, game theory issues, where it doesn't make sense for any one company to invest, but it does make sense for the entire society that federal research sponsor, let's say the invention of GPS, or the internet, or fusion power, or nuclear power, or the bio you know genetic engineering. So the goal of that Is to create something commercial. Otherwise, what are we doing it for? Just for fun? And number three, that the government doesn't get any economic return. Of course, it does. Once it's created, whether it's the biotechnology industry or the satellites that deliver GPS and you know empowered every smartphone in the world, or uh, the internet, which has built these you know you know enabled these trillion dollar companies. What do those companies do every year? They pay taxes a lot of taxes and what is individuals who work at those companies do every year they pay taxes so of course they get an economic return so
0: so, so you don't think, you, you don't think the fact that you, um that um a company has become you know huge and super profitable um, based, uh, using a technology where you know way back down the line the germ of that technology was supported by government that does not place some extra um, responsibility for some sort of extra action on that company beyond creating a great product and paying taxes and hiring workers, that there's not some special, it seems to me that um, what Ocasio-Cortez was saying that then that places some special burden on those companies that other companies don't have. And that, that may be, I, I'm not sure what, how that burden translates into how they run their business Maybe. I, I don't know, but there's some special burden on those companies because those roots way back were in government.
1: Now, uh, f- I would say two things here. One, as a general statement, absolutely not. How many companies use let- the transistor? Should we tax everybody because the transistor was developed with the help of federal research? How many people, you know, Apple makes smartphones. Actually, Apple's Siri was originally... Uh, you know, that little voice assistant that you speak yeah. into was originally was a spin-off of a DARPA project to help soldiers on battlefields get automated assistance. So should we tax every iPhone? As, as I say that in that that particular article, three dimensional graphics was funded by the federal government. So should we be taxing, you know, uh, frozen? You know, a little piece, you know, a couple cents off every movie ticket goes back to the federal government. for That's exactly the same distance or idea as taxing. drug for basic biology research. So I would say that's kind of one general point. There's a second point that's more subtle or or not quite as obvious, which is let's take the NIH, the National Institute of Health. It has a $40 billion budget, of which $4 billion goes into national labs. But actually the vast majority of research goes to fund, uh, of investment goes to fund research at universities. And when university scientists develop uh, discover something they file a patent there's a tech transfer office and every university has that now and then any company that wants to commercialize it does have to license that patent from the university and then pay a royalty so when universities and researchers take that next step companies do in fact have licenses and that is an indirect benefit back to society because it's kind of the purpose of that federal research is in one part to fund research, but in another part to train the future, the future workforce and 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 thinkers uh, and doers and engineers and of the country. And so there is a fact for that other thirty six billion of spend at the NIH. Anything that actually ends up making it into a commercial product does in fact have a license and does in fact pay royalties. So that's also kind of often missed in that discussion and just and just to wrap up so your
0: core message and again uh, the book just the but the, we don't want to give the wrong impression about the book the book goes a lot mostly into you know organizations that are that are' in government but you know how, how, how businesses can nurture these ideas but sort of like your your closing message to a policymaker on how to make sure that the United States you know better sort of nurtures uh, ideas what, what would that be if it's even possible well, th- to, to sum it up?
1: Three things. One, increase funding for national research. That's right. the various research agencies. Two, split them up smaller and smaller so you can set you know fund the crazy ideas that the kingmakers don't like. Right. Three, staple a green card to the back of every Ph.D.,
0: my guest today has been Safi Bacall, uh, author of the new book, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Safi, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim.